Listeners, this is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. It is definitely the fall. The leaves are changing colors. I am looking out of our window and I see red, I see green, I see yellow, and I see blonde. Well, speaking of blonde, it is so good to have Kara on the phone again for our weekly conversation. Yeah, I'm some version of blonde at this point. <laughs> And Gerard, I'm looking out my window. It's also a beautiful fall day here. And it's also just a lot of Red Sox fans losing their minds. I, as you know, I don't really follow baseball, but my son, my eight-year-old son is a baseball player and he's gotten really into it. And when I heard him shouting last night, we let him stay up past bedtime. Mommy, mommy, it's another grand slam. I was like, this kid doesn't know what a grand slam is. Even I know what a grand slam is, but yes, the Boston Red Sox. Three grand slams in two games. <laughs> like, what? Oh, yeah. If you haven't been watching, this might almost turn you into a baseball fan. It's pretty cool. Sorry, Astros fans. I know Jamie Gass, our producer, is a huge Astros fan. <laughs> it's very difficult for him. But this is actually, you know, people that we were, my kids were like, hey, Googling the Red Sox odds of like winning the World Series. And they weren't good. I gotta tell you, but the past couple of nights, it's, they seem to be defying the odds. So I suggest that you tune in, Gerard, if you haven't been paying attention, because miracles have been happening here. Well, they've been happening in Houston. I guess they're, we're coming back to Fenway Park soon. So anyway, that's my sports story of the week, Gerard. Well, my story actually is a really good follow up to what you just said, because this is also a comeback story. And this one is from Inside Higher Education. The authors are Andrew DeBlanco and Lonnie Pazish. And both of them work for the Teal Foundation. And this article is titled Reviving the Humanities Through General Education. So you and I went to college and several of our course, our listeners have as well. And we know a lot about general education courses. And these are the courses that you take outside of your major. Well, what I didn't know until I was preparing for the show today is that the whole idea of general education really has its roots in elite college education following World War II. And this is when you had people coming back to school and it was at Columbia University where there were a set of professors who said, listen, we need to make sure the students have a good grounding in the humanities and the arts because this war showed us what it's like to be inhumane. Well, then you go to World War II, you have Harvard University. Uh, they, of course, put out a big push for the whole idea. In fact, a report called the general education in a free society. And like its predecessor before, the big push was to make sure that students had a well-rounded education. Well, by the time we got to the Vietnam War and there were cuts in education, naturally general education found themselves on the chopping block. And so you go from the Vietnam War to the present and through and during the wars of the 1980s and 90s, the humanities really took a backseat to really general education and general classes. So what happened in 2014, in fact, a former professor at your school, the University of Chicago, moved to Purdue, and he identified that fewer than 10% of the students had taken classes in the humanities as we knew it, and even fewer had taken a course in history. And so Purdue decided they were going to do some work with financial support from the Teagle Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they launched something called the Cornerstone, Learning for Living. 
And the whole idea is to restore the humanities in schools, particularly for undergraduate students. And so producers say, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take our professors from the humanities and our professors from STEM, and they're gonna develop a 15 credit certificate called Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts. And the goal was to say they're gonna be you know, just a basically agreed to set of texts that we're gonna read through a two semester gateway sequence. And it will range from Plato and Dante to Du Bois, Tony Morrison, Mary Shelley and others. And they're gonna meet. And it's gonna be for first year students in particular. And then they're gonna of course take classes that they can take at a higher level. But if they go through the pathway, they will actually come out with a certificate. Now, naturally people would think, well, this is Purdue, strong STEM school. Truly, a lot of STEM students are going to take this course. Well, what happened is we started off in 2014. They had 60 students in the program. Now it attracts 4,000 students and 3,200 of those students, in fact, plan to major in engineering and other pre-professional fields. Well, that's just one example. Let's go to Austin Community College. And our listeners know that I'm a community college grad. So I'm always glad to see our community colleges on the forefront. They decided to create a similar program and theirs is called Great Questioning Seminar. And they start off with the Odyssey and they move through a number of courses. And the whole goal is for them to ask very deep questions about society and social values. Well, like Purdue, they start off with a few students. In fact, in 2016, at 30 students, and today they have over 625 students who are in the program. So this has done three things. Number one, it's got humanities professors and STEM professors in a room talking about big ideas, which I think is good. Number two, you're at least increasing the probability that more students will not only take courses in what we call the humanities and the arts, but guess what? Some of them, in fact, may decide they want to major in the subject. I was a philosophy major. Some people may decide to actually go and pursue it at the graduate level because there's definitely been a hit in the number of students in the humanities at the doctoral and master's level over the past two years because of COVID and other factors. The third thing is that all of a sudden you have Purdue and even Austin having to hire more instructors who in fact have a background in the humanities. So I think this is a comeback story for the humanities. We know that Pioneer Institute has been a big supporter of the humanities and the arts. And so I'm glad to see this story. Interested in hearing your thoughts. I love this story, Gerard, and I love this story. Um, first of all, I have to share with you that my absolute favorite, favorite course in high school was my humanities course, and the teacher was Susan Walker. And actually, at my 20-year high school reunion, which was <clears throat> many years ago, I got to see her. And the thing that struck me so much is I loved this course. I learned so much in this course, things that I took to college with me and remember today, obviously, if I can even remember my teacher's name. But this was a course that was for, we talked about this last week, that I got to be in a special program, right? A select program, a talented and gifted program. And this was a course that was only offered to kids who were in this program. And as an adult, I think back about, like, why? Why on earth would this be something? Is it an assumption about what kids can do? Is it an assumption about what kids need to know? Is it that there's a certain bar we hold for some students and not others? Because I had found that class and everything that came with it to be such an important part of my life. So this is a really heartening story. I love that we're making a humanities comeback here. And I love that you opened with the idea that after World War II, it was decided that we actually needed to teach the humanities because we had been through such an inhumane 
war, right? And this is, I love that concept. I hope that this is something that we can reiterate and take with us and teach kids as the spreading, as the growth in the teaching of the humanities continues. I mean, I think unfortunately for too many students, as, as much of a fan I am of accountability and as important as I think tests can be, but with a narrowing of curriculum, this is something that we lose and we especially lose the idea once we're not teaching humanities courses, we lose the idea that this is really important to the formation of humans, quite frankly, and also expanding our notion of what the humanities is. And we've had guests on that show talk about how do you really offer students, especially at the college level, you have much more of an opportunity to do that, a real breadth of material in the discipline that is the humanities. So what a fantastic story. Thank you for bringing it to us. I love hearing Purdue mention too, that you say, you know, you think of it as a STEM school, but look at what they're doing because to, and this goes, I think, to the point of the story that I want to share with us today, deeply thinking and reading about and making connections between the topics and texts and ideas that we study in the humanities, it spills over into other facets of one's life and career that really, it's analytical thinking. And Gerard, that takes me to my real story of the week, which is really not about baseball at all. But this is kind of cool. We're going to get a little bit meta because my story of the week is written by a former Learning Curve guest, Jay Matthews, about the work of a former Learning Curve guest, Will Fitzhugh. And so I think this is really cool because it shows maybe it means we're cool, Gerard. I don't know that we've got these two guys on, but it's also a great title. And the title of this from the Washington Post, again, by Jay Matthews is Stuff Your 5,000 Word Limit, Students Dare to Write Longer History Papers. I was really drawn to this article, Gerard, because I have to tell you, I spent some time, as you know, as a research assistant professor and then an adjunct lecturer at Boston University, which I love and I love the school. But there I worked with, in fact, juniors mostly, but undergraduates in education policy studies. And um, I don't consider myself to be a great writer. I find that every time I write something, I learn <laughs> that I'm not such a great writer, especially when somebody at Pioneer is editing my work. But one of the things I really noticed about, oh, as a high school English teacher, but it was more profound in college, was that we teach kids even at, and I was working with kids from some very high performing, mostly ritzy suburban high schools, quite frankly. We teach them to write in such a formulaic way and for so many kids, like, I mean, some people, listen, some people can ramble on for 17 pages and not have an idea in there. It can be one long sentence. But other people really, you know, I found a lot of students just had trouble. You would say to them, I need a five-page paper, and it would be a collective gasp and fear. And like, how am I going to be able to write something of that length? It's impossible, professor. It's impossible. And I think I've told you before, Gerard, that I actually switched the way I taught my classes. And instead of having students produce multiple papers, I switched to a model where we were producing one long research paper over the course of the semester that was edited over and over and over again, because I found that one of the things I needed to do was help students really learn how to write and write for the real world. They weren't getting it in high school. And this article in many ways goes to that. So it opens with this line, very few U.S. high schools ask their students to write long research papers. I mean, I would say that very few U.S. high schools are probably asking students to write actual research papers. That's a totally different 
different topic then, but, and we don't know why. Is it because teachers don't have the time to read and give feedback? It's just not valued. And in this article, Jay also raises the question, is it because we think kids can't do it? And I think that we can argue about whether or not it's super valuable to have everybody writing a 20 page paper all the time. Certainly my husband always tells me that every time I write something, he, he dozes off by page two, which is fine. Okay. Maybe not everybody needs to read 20 page papers about education policy, but in this sense, I think, Gerard, in much like in your story about the humanities, in my mind, writing is thinking. In learning to write well and learning to wrestle with the written word in the page is really honing our analytical skills and helping us think. So Jay goes on here to profile our friend, Will Fitzhugh, who is the founder of the Concord Review. And one of the things that Will, this former history teacher, has done is said to kids, like, go deep in something. Pick a research topic and go really deep. And so the students that he works with at the Concord Review, it says that now the average paper used by the Concord Review is up to 9,000 words, right? So that this was a big deal for a lot of students. And his organization has grown, the number of students he serves has grown. It's mostly history papers. It's a quarterly journal, as you know, and it's so far published almost 1,500 history papers by high schoolers, and there are even a few middle schoolers that participate in this program. But Fitzhugh, he's, you know, he's really glommed onto this concept that kids are capable, and they're capable of doing not only really deep, thoughtful work, but they can write, they can write long papers. And so you can think about what that means, not just for preparing students to write in college, but really preparing students to be thinkers. And I just think that this raises some really interesting questions about what we value in writing and the kind of high bar we hold kids to. And indeed, are we preparing students to be good thinkers? Are we preparing them for graduate study if we're afraid to ask folks to go deep and sometimes to go long? So this is a really great article, I think, in the post. I, I thank Jay for it. And thinking about the Concord Review, I think that all of our listeners should become more aware of it and take a look at it. I'll end by saying that even AP and IB, so Advanced Placement and the International Baccalaureate Programs, have said that they want to encourage the kind of writing that students are doing in the Concord Review. And as we know, these kinds of exams are known to be very rigorous. And those who work for AP and IB have a really good handle on the kind of writing that constitutes quality writing in from high school students and, and that kind of writing that's going to help them be successful in college because we know that kids who do well in AP and IB programs often place out of early college classes. So um, a really interesting article by two Learning Curve alum, Gerard, and I'm wondering, you yourself are a great writer and prolific writer. So you're like sending me a new thing every day. And I'm thinking, how does this guy do it? So I don't know, maybe maybe this resonates with you a little bit. I don't know how many 20 page papers you're writing lately, but what do you think? Well, I'm a big fan of writing now as an adult in ways I, of course, was not as a struggling high school student. My wife and I work pretty diligently to make sure that our girls write both by hand and type because there are, of course, some aspects of brain hand coordination work and how you think that come about when you actually write versus when you type. And in fact, we had uh, one of our guests who has a book on teaching children how to read also talk about the importance of writing. So I'm with you the whole way. We know that in this season of NAEP interpretation, and there are a lot of tweets going around 
on the internet for some of our friends. We rarely talk about the 2017 scores for writing on NAEP. And they were challenging to say the least. But there are two things I think we have in place right now. Number one, writing is tough for a lot of students in part because they're so used to using their cell phone or some handheld device to type X number of characters. And for them, that's writing. And then number two, you have teachers who have a number of demands on his or her plate. And now we're asking them, oh, by the way, have them write a really long paper to do so. There are college professors who are friends of mine who say students today not only write less than they did when they were in school, but write less well. But I think every generation would say the one coming behind it is not as academically prepared as the other. But there's something to this, and I'm glad that Jay is weighing in on this in a very interesting way. I would say for me that one of the ways that I became a better writer was by reading well-written books. And one of my favorite authors who not only builds my vocabulary because there's words in there like every third page I've never heard of, but what often helped me with flow is Dr. David Levering Lewis. He is the two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his biography on W.E.B. Du Bois. He's also written other books, but he's a really good writer. But I also get a great writing tips and ideas from poetry. So I think it's a good article and glad we talked about it. Yeah, to say that you make me feel really old talking about how kids write on their phones because anybody who knows me and you know this quite well, Gerard, I can't text to save my life. I can't write on a phone to save my life. So that must make me pretty old school because <laughs> it's just, I don't think it's something I will ever become capable of. I can't, that's so autocorrect. Anyway, but coming up after this, Gerard, we are going to be speaking to somebody who knows a lot about writing. We're going to be speaking with David Reynolds and he is the Distinguished Professor of English and History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's going to talk to us about, among other things, his new book, a, well, his 2020 book, I should say, but everything is new in 2021. I don't know. Time moves so fast, Gerard. He is the author of Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. So we'll be back in just a second. And we are back with David Reynolds, a distinguished professor of English and history at the PhD program at the City University of New York Graduate Center. He's the author or editor of 16 books, including Abe, Abraham Lincoln and His Times, which was a noted book of the year by the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Professor Reynolds is the winner of the Bancroft Prize, the Lincoln Prize, the Christian Gauss Award, the Abraham Lincoln Institute Book Award, the Ambassador Book Award, the Gustav Myers Outstanding Book Award, John Hope Franklin Prize, and finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He is a regular contributor to the New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, and the Wall Street Journal. Professor Reynolds, thanks so much for joining us today on The Learning Curve. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, we are really, really happy to have you. So Abraham Lincoln is a much written about figure. So over 15,000 books, in fact, have been written about Abraham Lincoln. But you, in this new book, you've earned a lot of praise for placing him sort of firmly in the wider cultural landscape of his age. Could you talk a little bit about why that approach, as well as what students and teachers, we focus a lot on learning here, learning meaning K to 12 education, what students and teachers should know about the culture of Civil War America? I'm a strong believer that, that culture 
profoundly shapes every individual. Our family cultural background, our local culture, school culture, church, and how these local phenomena intersect with certain strands in the larger culture. And there have been some 16,000 books on Lincoln, but none, none of them really branch out too much into his culture. And what I do in my book then is I trace uh, his frontier culture. He was raised on the frontier in Kentucky and Indiana and how he interacted with that and responded to it, then on to Illinois, where he lived for the rest of his life, and where he was kind of a rising professional there as a lawyer, uh, but also the entire uh, culture of law in Illinois, because he was engaged in law for more than two decades and was involved with more than 5,000 5, cases as a lawyer. And then the whole culture of Washington politics, when he goes to Washington in 1860, and then is reelected in 1864 and directs the Civil War. I think what I reveal all the way along is his ability to control the wild. The frontier that he grew up on was extremely wild. He grew to be a very good wrestler and fighter. He never fought dirty, but and that kind of earned him his early political rise because he really impressed the backwoods gangs of young people in uh, Illinois when he defeated the local champion. And for the rest of his life, he was uh, faced with these kind of wild situations, uh, a culture that he called the mobocracy because it was filled with mob action. And he really believed in the law. He believed in constitution. He didn't believe in independent uh, anti-slavery action like John Brown, who used violence against slavery. And he didn't believe in people like Garrison who burned the Constitution because they thought it was pro-slavery. He wanted to use the electoral process and laws to advance anti-slavery. And that was his form of kind of corralling the energies of his culture and sticking to the founding fathers, but at the same time taking his own unique way of controlling culture, partly through language. His favorite genre was poetry, and what poetry does is it organizes feeling and emotion and meaning in beautiful language. He loved Shakespeare, he loved Burns, he memorized. He had less than one year of schooling, but he took it upon himself to memorize so many poems, and he wrote poetry himself. And his greatest speeches, the Gettysburg Address, only 272 words, and the second inaugural address, around 700 words, are like prose poems. They condense so much meaning and feeling into this concise language. So language then becomes one of his ways of corralling and channeling culture, ultimately toward redefining American democracy. He wanted to expand American democracy and get rid of social injustice. So that was the whole thrust of his interaction with culture. That's fascinating. In fact, before you came on, Gerard and I were just having a conversation about how the importance of reading and writing and teaching us to, to become thinkers and, and how giving students the opportunity to engage in deep reading and, in fact, deep writing can really cultivate their ability to think analytically. And you've certainly talked about Lincoln in those terms. So now you mentioned, and, and I think many people know, that Lincoln's formal education was not, he, he didn't have much of it. Um, it was pretty limited. But you also noted that he was an avid reader. Some of the great books that he's known for reading are Aesop's Fables, of course, the Bible. And 
classic poetry and Shakespeare. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the specific impact that some of these books had on his thinking? And I'm also curious to know about primary education in the United States at that time, in mid-19th century America. Was, was it common for folks not to have that formal education that Lincoln was lacking? Well, it was spotty. New England had very good schools. He was raised on the Kentucky frontier and the Indiana frontier. And when you lived on the frontier, you were expected above the age of five to work for the family. So the schooling was by season, before the farming season, the planting season, after the harvest season. And so he went for three months, like in fifth grade, or what we would call fifth, and maybe three months, uh, three years later, and three, the, the total schooling he had, had in these one-room schoolhouses was uh, less than one year, less than one year. And yet he could quote Shakespeare by the page, Robert Burns by the page, Aesop's fables by the page. And he's a good lesson to all of us that now today, we really should get as much schooling as we possibly can today. However, in his time, as I said, schooling was spotty and people had to really teach themselves. And we can learn from these people who, as much as uh, it's important for us to go to school, and I would say get as many degrees as you can, always remember to try to teach yourself as well outside of the classroom, not just as an assignment. Find a topic that interests you. Walt Whitman, our greatest poet, who was a contemporary of, of Lincoln, didn't go beyond age 11 in school, and yet he uses more different words in his poetry than any other poet in English except Shakespeare. Herman Melville, well, Melville made it through high school, and yet he wrote Moby Dick and these great novels without ever having gone to college. Uh, Frederick Douglass didn't, he was an enslaved person who escaped from slavery, and he didn't have any formal schooling whatsoever, and yet he taught himself. And all these people, including Lincoln, are examples to us, to you, to me, that yes, we should get whatever schooling is available to us, to be sure, all the way along, but never forget that some of the most important schooling comes from ourselves and our own curiosity. And in each of those cases I just mentioned, it was their deep curiosity just for feeding their minds. And they really provide a wonderful lesson, I think, for all of us. Well, I think you've just given me the lesson that I'm going to teach my kids at the dinner table tonight. I'll tell them that a very important historian and writer told them that they need to uh, learn outside of school. Yeah. Um, I want to just push on one more thing here, because Lincoln was not only known for quoting Shakespeare, but when he was running against Stephen Douglas for U.S. Senate, he talked about Euclid and geometric axioms in the debates, in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Why would a 19th century... Illinois politician, <laughs> um, reference an ancient Greek mathematician in, in a debate for public office. Can you help us understand that one? What was really interesting about him is that his mind spanned the whole range of topics from the scientific to the humanistic. And even from the high to the low, he even liked body humor and sentimental songs, but he went to the opera and he went to Shakespeare and everything. And He's the only president who has a patent for an invention. He invented a kind of a, a, a certain thing for boats, for boats that, that he observed, but, and he had to figure it out all mathematically. So there was a mathematical and scientific side of his mind. 
And when he was traveling on the law circuit for like almost six months a year, at night he would sometimes read Shakespeare, but sometimes read Euclid. And he, Euclid was a uh, geometrician, and he would memorize all the propositions of Euclidean geometry. And in his case, it really supported his idea of equality because Euclid has his whole theories about, you know, things equal to the same thing or equal to each other and uh, equal angles and equal sides and so forth and, and dissimilar and so forth. And he applied this really to politics because he made a kind of syllogism that all people are men, blacks are people, you know, whites are people. And so wh whites and blacks are both humans. And so therefore, blacks are humans. Because African-Americans were not viewed totally as human uh, on the same level as white people back then. But so at Gettysburg, when he says a nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, he memorized all 150 or so propositions of Euclid, of Euclid, you see. And for him, the whole racial issue was almost a, a Euclidean matter of equality. So it really feeds into his politics as well. Professor, to take it a step further, you've talked about his mind, his thoughts, and his ideas. And he had to use this during a very contentious point in American history. He was coming of age politically when slavery, states' rights, trade tariffs, and women's rights were on the forefront. What lessons can our teachers and students today learn from Lincoln about how he addressed many of those divisions that were tearing apart his country at that time? I think what we can learn is is his whole transition as a politician, because in the 1830s, he was using what was called slasher gaff language, which was really kind of fiercely criticizing and attacking his opponents. And he got into a duel. He almost, he could have been killed, but fortunately the duel was, was uh, called off. And he realized that he should turn to persuasion and logic and reason when dealing with these political issues. And so when he reemerges in the 1850s, he has a new kind of rhetoric and he has learned to channel his passion through persuasive rhetoric. And I think that gets back to the idea of language, marshalling your ideas uh, through persuasive uh, language and so forth. And also he compared himself to Blondin. Blondin was the most famous tightrope walker who went back and forth on a tightrope above Niagara Falls without a net, and sometimes he was carrying a man on his back, sometimes pushing a wheelbarrow, sometimes on stilts, so forth. And Lincoln said, you know, I'm like Blondin. I try to keep to the center because in a very divided America, even more divided than today, he found that the best way was to try to stick as close to the center as possible and to avoid being inflammatory or too radical, because if he was, he could fall off the tightrope, particularly as president, and the nation could be lost. And he was approached by people as president who said, can't you make this a more anti-slavery war from the start? And he said, I hate slavery, I detest it, but if I say the wrong thing, we could lose Kentucky or Tennessee or one of the border states, and then we're going to lose the war. So he had to really be blonde, and I think it's an example of in a divided time politically, yes, follow your passions by objecting to things you see wrong. And he was very, very firm about his moral objections to slavery. But at the same time, 
avoiding inflammatory language that's only going to cause further division. So as I hear you talk, I think about his gift and the whole idea of linguistic dexterity and rhetoric, and in ways that was unheard of at his time and in ways many of our national politicians could not emulate today. Talk a little bit more about how his deep knowledge of the Bible, our founding documents, and his rhetorical skills helped him preserve the Union and abolish slavery. Because as I hear you talk, it could have gone either way, given the political tightrope he was walking on. Yeah. Well, he has really three or four major speeches. Some of them draw directly off the Bible, the phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He was talking about the divided nation, but that phrase is from the Bible. So uh, he's almost going back to the Bible at that point and using a very powerful phrase to describe America and say, we cannot stand together if we remain so sharply divided as a house divided. And then in his Cooper Union address, he went back, back to the founding documents. In that speech, he is trying to show and prove that the founding fathers, even though some of them held people in bondage, such as Jefferson and Washington and so forth, but fundamentally the founding fathers were basically anti-slavery and e eventually uh, foresaw the extinction and abolition of slavery. And he does such a, uh, and he, to write that speech, he really, really studied the Constitutional Convention, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, all the founding documents he went through very, very carefully. And then his third most important speech, Gettysburg, in the very first sentence, he dedicates the nation to the proposition that all men are created equal. And in that phrase, he's going back to the, the uh, Declaration of Independence, which says that it pronounced, declares, all men are created, we would say all humans are created equal, and uh, they are uh, granted the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So by putting that phrase right in, in the very first sentence of the Gettysburg Address, he really, really brings the vision of the Declaration right to the very heart of America. And it's so wonderful. And then his final important speech, the second inaugural address, has many references to, to God and the Bible in support of the defeat of slavery. He says, until every lash inflicted upon the back of the enslaved person is repaid by a thrust of the sword. Well, that's the kind of thing God would say was a righteous act in the Old Testament. He says it a little more eloquently than that, but he, he often, it's almost like a sermon, the second inaugural, and a lot of African Americans were in the audience, and Frederick Douglass afterwards uh, said, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. That speech was such a sacred effort. So yeah, the Bible and the founding documents give incredible resonance and meaning to his speeches. And I think about his speeches then and what it meant to preserving the Union and avoiding slavery for another generation. I also think about the December 5th, 1955 speech that then a young Martin Luther King Jr. delivered at the Holt Street Baptist Church, where, of course, Rosa Parks had decided, no, I'm not going to get up. And in that speech, he talked about the Constitution and the Bible and our founders and how important that speech was 
to shaping the foundation, not only of his nonviolent movement, but also the whole idea that civil rights and human rights and the push for black liberation of the United States was in fact linked to our founding ideals, even if we found sometimes those ideals were used for different reasons. Well, speaking of ideals, I'd like to turn it over to you right now to choose a passage of your choice to read to us. Sure. Okay, this is sort of the conclusion of my book. Langston Hughes memorably captured the spirit of the statue. I'm talking about the Lincoln Memorial and the statue in it um, of Lincoln. In his 1926 poem, Lincoln Monument, Washington, let's go see old Abe sitting in the marble and the moonlight, sitting lonely in the marble and the moonlight, quiet for 10,000 centuries, old Abe, quiet for million, million years, quiet and yet a voice forever against the timeless walls of time, old Abe. And then I go on. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech delivered before a quarter of a million people from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963, guided old Abe's voice toward the future. Five score years ago, King said, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln's decree came as a joyous daybreak for millions of enslaved people. But, King argued, America had since then betrayed Lincoln's ideals. Injustice still prevailed. King envisioned a time when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews, Gentiles, Protestants, and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Affirming national unity, King declared, with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. These inspiring words bring us back to Lincoln. At America's most divided time, Lincoln pushed hard toward justice while keeping the whole nation foremost in his mind. He progressed cautiously, shrewdly, inexorably, with honesty, with humility, with winning humor, and in the end, with his thoughts on all Americans, regardless of party, religion, or race. His principled vision and his disarming modesty remain an inspiration to everyday Americans and political leaders alike. Freedom, equality, justice for everyone, even for the most marginalized or oppressed, contained within one nation. This was Abe in his democratic fullness. Thank you. Well, Professor Reynolds, Karen and I thank you for joining us. I personally want to thank you for using scholarship as a platform for a generational conversation about culture and what it means to us today, what it meant then, but more importantly, to encourage adults and children alike, those who are in the classroom and those who are outside, to really look at Abe, as you call him, as a figure in world history who really not only changed American society, but also the way we think. And at a point in American history, when people are questioning the meaning of school, what does learning really look like? To take someone from his humble background who was not afforded even a third of the amenities that we have today to pursue our uh, quest for knowledge. You show that he was able to do it as someone saying from a biblical perspective, floating in on both broken pieces. But thank you for your work and look forward to future conversations. 
Thank you very, very much for having me. And I encourage all of you to read my book, <laughs> as I know some of you have. But thank you for having me. It's always wonderful to talk about Lincoln. My tweet of the week comes from Denisha Merriweather, who is the founder of Black Minds Matter. She also worked in the U.S. Department of Education and has a great personal story herself of not only becoming the first in her family to graduate college, but she now has earned a master's in social work. She's doing really good work. Her tweet is from October 17th. Black families now homeschool at a higher rate than any other demographic in America. Black Minds Matter shows a Black homeschool rate growing from 3.3% in March of 2020 to 16.1 by October of 2020. So we've talked about this in passing before, but it says something, families interested in different ways of learning. So I wanna give a shout out to Denisha. I'm a huge fan of Denisha, I consider her a friend. She is a brilliant young person. And man, those numbers, Gerard, are really astonishing. It's astonishing to see homeschool numbers go up overall. We made a lot of assumptions about whether they would go back down when things were back to normal. Things are really back to normal and have been at least a new normal in a lot of places. And I don't think those homeschooling numbers are going to budge too much. I think a lot of parents, especially those who weren't satisfied, have really found their groove, so to speak, with homeschooling and kids too. So great tweet of the week. Gerard, our time has come to an end, but we will be together again, so don't you fret, because next week, actually, this is pretty cool, I'm excited about this, we are going to be talking to Dr. Broer Saxberg, MD, and he is the Vice President of Learning Science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Looking forward to that, Gerard. Until next week, take care. Do watch the baseball games. They're fascinating. We'll see if this weird Red Sox Street continues. And I hear you're supposed to eat, they call them rally cups. I didn't know. People probably think like, what a dork. She knows nothing about baseball. Rally cups. Um, I guess those are Reese's peanut butter cups. And I will say, I've been letting my kids have a Reese's peanut butter cup at night. And so that makes my son happy that the Sox will win. So I hope you're watching, Gerard. Until next week, take care of yourself. Oh.